I'm author and critic David Agronoff. I'm a horror and science fiction author, critic, and researcher. In this podcast, I wanted to provide in-depth interviews and panel discussions with everyone from New York Times bestselling authors to researchers, musicians, and anyone I find interesting. Welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. Hello and welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. I am your host, David Agronoff, and I'm excited to have a special guest here today, Steve Davidson, who is the co-editor of a book called Sense of Wonder and the publisher of the classic magazine, Amazing Stories in its Modern Form. We're going to talk about all that in a minute. Welcome to the podcast, Steve. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Yeah, I want to take a second, though, just because it's my podcast, plug my latest book, too, just came out, Nightmare City, uh, co-written with Anthony Trevino, my co-host on the Dickheads podcast. So just wanted to put that out there. That's out there, too. So when you go to, to Amazon to buy Sense of Wonder or wherever you you want to buy it, bookshop.org, whatever, pick up Nightmare City, too. But uh, we're here but to talk. Two, but pick up two copies of Sense of Wonder when you do so. Yeah, exactly. Now, <laughs> now, um, but I will tell people that the Kindle edition is at a very reasonable price right now. Um, I did notice that it's uh, a four ninety nine Kindle, and um, so for those of you who are e readers, that's that's an incredibly good deal is uh, to pick up this one. So we're going to talk about Sense of Wonder in a little bit, but Steve, let's introduce the folks to who you are, where your science fiction background, uh, like how did you get in? I know you've been a, a part of the science fiction community for a long time. How did you get involved with science fiction? Um, my mother, actually, who had no prior or current interest in science fiction, used to make up stories that were science fictional in nature. Uh, to tell me when I was very young. And then uh, in 64, uh, Fireball XL5 hit the airwaves in the United States, and there was no turning back from that point on. I went from uh, Fireball XL5 to Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, to Lost in Space, to sneaking down the stairs at night to watch Star Trek over my father's shoulder in the living room, and, and on and on and on. Um, by the time we got to the mid-70s, uh, I was aware of the magazines and searching for fandom. And uh, in 76, it turned out that the chairman of the then upcoming Worldcon lived in my neighborhood. And I got in touch with them and asked if they were looking for people to help with the convention. And we had a meeting and I was brought on board, uh, spent almost every afternoon over. It was Don and uh, Grace Laundry who were the chair people for that con. So Sun wh con. Which con? Where was this? Sun Con in 77. It was in uh, Miami. Miami. At the, okay. At the, at the decrepit and bankrupt Fontainebleau Hotel. So you're a lifelong Flor Floridian then? No, I am uh, from, Jer this was in Jersey. The convention, oh, okay. what happened was that the original uh, committee 
basically fell apart. Uh, and it was almost, uh, uh, 77 was almost a year without a convention. It was the first one that was run by an entirely remote crew. Uh, the big committee and everybody working on the con was primarily from uh, Northern New Jersey and uh, New York, Brooklyn, et cetera. Uh, and while it's considered to be not one of the greatest world cons, the fact that we actually pulled it off and persevered and had one, we were able to hand out the awards. We hosted the second to last Hugo Awards banquet uh, ever held, which I managed, and uh, it is uh, is considered a, a fair piece of uh, Spanish history. Oh yeah, that's that's really interesting that it was done uh, remotely. Um, and so you're from New Jersey. You grew up in yeah, New Jersey. I grew up in New Jersey, and this was in the '70s. Remember, no email, no computers, no uh, exactly. you know everything was done on an IBM Selectric. Uh, and if you go and you look in the program book, the membership list, most of it was typed by me on an IBM Selectric in the gun, in the Wondry's house. <laughs> Interesting. Well, that, that, that's fun. Who won that year for best novel? Do you remember? Or? Uh, no, I, no, I don't. I know that the guests of honor were, um, um, oh God, now I'm going to start having a uh, word we call well, issues. I do have Jack, this, so I could look. Jack Jack Williamson and Bob Madel was the fan guest of honor. And the interesting bit of history with Bob is that um, the first conventions I ever went to were the second New York City Star Trek convention. Okay, and, so it, I, I now know who the winner is. It was Where the Late uh, Sweet Birds yes, Sang by by, uh, by Wilhelm. Yep. Mm hmm. And oh, great nominees though. We had Frank yep. Herbert, Children of Dune, Man Plus, Frederick Paul. Yep. Yeah. And Silverberg and Handelman. So good mm -hmm. year. Good year. So yeah, it was. Um, where late the sweet birds uh, sang uh was uh, uh a bit unusual because it was a novel win for a female author uh back then. Um and so you know fandom pretty much has always had that sensibility. It's just it didn't have much chance to express itself. Uh, but uh, Bob Nadel, to return to Bob Nadel, mm -hmm. uh, so I went to the uh, second Star Trek uh, convention in New York City. And the following year, I went back to the next one. But at the next one, I had already become jaded with Star Trek fandom. Uh, and the uh, straw was to now I'm 15, 16, something like that at the time. Uh, two adult males, both dressed as Captain Kirk with water pistol phasers, having a fight in the lobby over who the real Captain Kirk was. And it was not a fun fight. It was a serious fight. And at that point, right. I at that point, I picked up my bag of goodies from the dealer's room and walked out of the hotel. Uh, and fortunately, I had also gone to the that year's Philadelphia Star Trek convention. And they had all kinds of announcements for PhilCon coming up. And I went to PhilCon and I found my Spanish home. Right. Bob, Bob Nadel was there. Bob is one of the, was, he just died recently uh, at 100 or 101 or something like that. 
and he was a member of first fandom he was at the first world con in new york city in 1939 uh and he would have tables selling pulps and i met him at that philadelphia convention and he spent in between sales he must have spent a good half of that convention explaining all about danish history and the history of the pulp magazines and all that other kinds of stuff and i was just overwhelmed and hooked at at that point oh, that's awesome yeah and he just you said he just recently passed away yeah as a matter of fact he did he lived in maryland he was a member of the uh, uh boston uh, science the uh, baltimore science fiction society uh of which i have a lot of friends in too because a regular go-to con for me for a number of years was balticon uh and um he was frequently there he actually uh provided me he didn't give it to me i had to buy it but he went and sourced and found my copy of amazing stories volume one number one uh for me to purchase to add to my collection wow yeah. number one huh yeah wow. wow that's really cool um wow yeah um it's it's interesting because we this year well you know every year now we're we're, we're losing some of the greats uh of fandom and and for uh and of course the the writers just recently losing ray nelson and greg bear and um you know i yeah. think that's a good reminder why and i think that's one of the important things that you're doing and it's something that i obviously take seriously which is learning and teaching the history of the genre. And um, it seems like that um, that's a good part of your mission with uh, bringing amazing stories back. How did that happen? Well, um, I was working as a um, intellectual property portfolio manager at a, a company that made uh, paintball gear and less than lethal weapon systems, protein products. And uh, I don't know about you, but somebody says, hey, we want to use this name for a trademark for this product line. Go and check and see what complications there may be. So you have to go to the USPTO's website and you have to research and see what's uh, done and whatnot. And that can be an extremely boring but lengthy task. So to keep myself jazzed and interested, I would frequently go and search for trademarks that I was interested in, and Amazing Stories was one of them. And I would go and I would check, and Amazing Stories was still hold, held by Hasbro, still held by Hasbro, still held by Hasbro, which was a long chain of events in and of itself. And then one day, I happened to do that search again. And it came up and it said that the trademark for Amazing Stories that had been held by Hasbro was dead, meaning it was no longer a registered trademark. Now, I, so Steven Spielberg being involved with the TV series didn't have didn't affect you guys on that? Or is that a separate? No, that's that's actually an interesting part of the story, which if you don't mind, I will get to in train. Okay? Yes, yes. Take your time. So my wife was also working at the company at, at the same company at the time. And I called her over and I said, uh, Karen, could you read what that says on the screen? Because I thought I was in a dream or having some kind of bizarre hallucination or something. And she said, amazing story is dead. And I said, okay, we're gonna have to talk 
when we get home tonight. And I explained to her, I mean, she knew of my involvement with science fiction, but she wasn't really up on the history of the magazines or anything like that. And I explained and I told her, I said, look, uh, I write the application so we don't have to pay an attorney to do it. I do the search so we don't have to pay an attorney to do it. It'll cost a couple of hundred dollars and I'd like to register it. And then that way, at the very least, I'm sure that at some point in the future, we'll be able to resell it to somebody in the science fiction field and at least recover our investment, if not make a little money on it. And she said, yeah, sure, no problem. So I went and I filed the application and I was informed multiple months later that uh, it wasn't being granted because there was another application that had gotten in ahead of mine by less than a day. So I called up my attorney and I said, what do you, they want, they want it, the USPTO wants to know if I want to drop it or let it sit. And my attorney said, you know, well, you know, as well as I do that most trademark applications eventually fail for one reason or another, let it, let it ride. So we let it ride, took 10 months. And then I was informed by the USPTO, they had one minor office action. I hadn't done something like saying that I wasn't claiming the word stories or something like that in the trademark. And uh, it granted. And this was uh, started in 2008, concluded in late, in, in early 2012. Uh, it was granted. And in that intervening time frame, I had gone and talked to people and uh, lined up some potential investors and whatnot to bring the magazine back out. And uh, by the time that it finally granted, for a variety of different reasons, all of those investors were gone. And as, so, as that happens to be usually, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so I was perfectly content to let it sit until I had a chance to work on it and figure out other things. Um, and uh, also during that time, I had put together, a, you asked, you know, what the purpose was of all this, what my goals were. Um, and essentially, I had put together what I called a social magazine. The idea was to tie the magazine to social networking with some changes to social networking that would encourage a fanish type of uh, interaction between people. Um, and that was what I mostly needed the money for was to build the social networking engine that did things differently than Facebook and, and Twitter and, and all the others. Um, and about six months in all that, I started getting emails and phone calls with, from people and, and meetings at cons and whatnot. When are you going to do something with the magazine? When are you going to do something with the magazine? And on and on and on. And finally, I talked to Kermit, who was doing the back end for me. Um, we met right. through, uh, we met through Bud Webster, who was also sadly gone. Um, we were both friends with Bud and Bud put Kermit in touch with me. Um, and my connection with Bud was that he was big on anthologies and I also have a fairly extensive anthology collection. Um, so we got together and, uh, decided that, uh, we could do some stuff effectively but that we were going to have to bootstrap the whole thing 
uh, chop the knees off, uh, chop it off at the knees for most of the variety of things that we wanted to do um, right out of the gate. And um, so we put the website together and then, and then launched basically as a, as a multi-author blog on the subject of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The vision initially was always trying to create a watering hole for Spanish interests. Right. Um, we never quite achieved that goal, and I don't think that anybody can because of the various changes. Fandom is not the way that it used to be, um, and neither is the market uh, or um, pretty much anything else. Um, the, well, the, the the world is very different these days. <laughs> yeah. And and every year it, it's it's even more. You know, one one of you mentioned history and whatnot, and how important it is to fandom and and tradition and et cetera. And what I'd like to say is that history is our only accurate way of judging how the future is going to look. And by ignoring history, we're we're taking away our only available tool for judging how people are going to react to various things, changes, et cetera, et cetera. And the, the environment these days uh, in many respects, seems to come across to me as a, a, a very strong rejection of anything considered traditional, especially if it is associated with the baby boomers who seem to be taking a major hit, uh, a group that I am a member of. It don't, doesn't seem like I can open my mouth about anything without basically hearing, yeah, okay, boomer, and we don't listen to you guys because you ruin the world and blah, 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 kind of. And it's really, it's really sad. Well, you know, it's funny as somebody who, you know, really enjoys the history of the way, way back science fiction, which I do, you know, I, I like looking at, you know, look, th there's times, especially like when you read Gern like Gernsback's introduction to, to, um, Claire Winger Harris's story in years, a great example of like, whoa, 1927, what the hell are you thinking? Right. But at the same time, like, you know, I appreciate and understand, like, I try to divorce myself from like, you know, this is the way things were then, but it's it's a, a, a milepost of how far we've gotten, right? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah. but I also think that um, I really, um, there's the 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 scene in um the new Kate Blanchett movie Tar where she's talking to a classical student who's um you know disavowed everything by this work of a composer that you know because of their problematic behavior or whatever and 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 it, it's a really interesting scene because I you know look look I know Asimov was handsy and gross and did gross things but um you know, the work is the work. And um, at a certain point, like, to me, like, we have to, um, I don't want to not talk about the history of, you know, the gross things that happen. But at the same time, like, we want to learn the history and, and see the progression. And, and, and that's one of the things that and, and wasn't trying to make a segue. But, you know, that's one of the cool things about Sense of Wonder is that, um, it's a new, like, we can have all the histories that we want. We can have the David Pringles. We can have the Damon Knights. 
you know, history of, of, you know, Barry Maltzberg wrote a great history of the genre and Breakfast in the Ruins. But what's cool is, is this book is, is, is entertainment as well as, as history by looking at something that I would never have known about. Like I would never have known that Hugo Gernsback did this story contest, for example. So why don't we, um, I mean, I don't know, we can still talk. I don't know if, I think I understand where you're coming from on amazing stories. It it just seems like it's it's really cool that you're carrying on that tradition. I'm sure you feel a real heavy weight doing that, right? I mean, like well, I I you know again, one of the reasons that I wanted to get the uh, the the trademark was because that I knew that I would treat it in a Spanish Spanishly responsible manner even if that was selling it to another publisher who would do a better job than I could of, of bringing out the magazine, it would be done from within the sensibilities of being aware of the history and the import of the magazine. Um, whereas the person that was in line before me, uh, if their trademark for Amazing had been granted, there would be now a series of Canadian travel books out underneath the name Amazing Stories. Yikes, yikes, um, yeah. And you also wanted to ask about Spielberg and whatnot. So let me cover that real, real quick and then and then sure. go on. That's all right with you. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. The magazine was sold by Zip Davis to Ultimate Publishing, Saul Cohen, Ultimate Publishing, who was responsible for all the reprint magazines that Zip, that the then new Sifwa had took issue with, uh, got him to agree to pay uh, reprint fees to most of the authors, even though he did have the rights to reprint them without having to pay any fees, but it helped Sifwa get started. Uh, and then Saul Cohen sold it to TSR. TSR was purchased by Wizards of the Coast. Wizards of the Coast was purchased by Hasbro. So Hasbro owns the trademark. Hasbro has an interesting intellectual property history. They will not sell to anybody. They will not license to anybody, but they will allow intellectual property to lapse if they feel that they don't have any more interest in it, which is how come I was able to get a hold of it. Right. Um, so that's, that's the chain of, of, of how uh, we ended up with it. Um, I forgot what the other Spielberg, <laughs> but Sp Spielberg in the eighties makes amazing. So when 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 he did the show in the eighties, they licensed the name from TSR. They paid a hundred thousand dollars for an annual licensing fee, and the magazine itself, other than printing on the copy on the cover, now a television Steven Spielberg television series, absolutely no connection between the show and the magazine, none whatsoever. They then came back to me uh, to say that, um, to assert that they were going to send me an honorarium for having maintained the name, but they did not feel that they owed uh, anything in terms of a licensing fee. And they asked me if I had an attorney. And this is literally how I said to them that I did. Why, yes, I do. Because right. they, were, they were trying to snow me. 
The person that I was talking to on the phone presented themselves as a production assistant. It was the head VP of NBC Universal legal department. They absolutely assured me over the phone that Spielberg was not involved in this new iteration. And of course he was. The explanation for that was that if I knew Spielberg was involved, I would ask for too much money. Let's put it this way. I didn't get nearly as much as TSR did. Right. They put out six terrible episodes. We have renegotiated the contract once. And uh, I just decided I'd had enough and I just put an end to our latest uh, attempts to force a renegotiation. We served them uh, over two years ago, we served them with a notice of uh, breach and termination for non-payment of uh, funds. And uh, they finally, two years later, got around to getting in touch with my attorney to ask for a copy of my W-2 so that they could send me the fees that they owed me, which of course means that if I accept those fees, the contract is back in effect. I have no doubt that they will breach it again. So I don't really have too much worry, but uh, I really should not have ever licensed them to begin with. The threats were, well, we'll bring the show out anyhow. You don't have enough money to sue us. You know, it was just a really, don't ever work with fucking Hollywood if you ever have the opportunity to do not do it because they will screw you over. Well, and um, the show that they made just kind of disappeared too. Like they, it's because it's not- the only reason why they came to me and the only reason why they did that show was so that they could have the name in their intellectual property portfolio. That's the only reason. Interesting. Yeah, because six six episodes and it disappeared, and it's yeah. And you want to know something? Spielberg does not understand science fiction. He understands parable, he understands allegory, fable, and fantasy, but he does not understand science fiction. Hmm. Well, um, it's interesting because, uh, well, one of the reasons why the the 80s show worked is that Richard Matheson was one of the the story editors. So, uh, But go back and watch those episodes and you tell me how many of them are science fiction. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's more of a fantasy show. Yeah, yeah. Agreed. I, I will agree with that. All right, let's talk sense of wonder because yeah. um and I That's already what we're here for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um this book for those watching on YouTube. Um and you reached out to me um and because I think because I had been doing the 1930s uh podcast series and you said uh, um you know hey these might be of interest to you and they were because Good. obviously I want to know you. about 20 science fiction as well, um, which there's a lot less 20 science fiction than there is 30. Oh, well, absolutely. Right. And, um, but what year did um, Amazing Stories start? And let's talk about Amazing Stories in the 20s. 1926 was the first issue of that magazine. However, several years before, and now you have to understand that Gernsback was pretty much of a phenomenon. Um, He started a magazine called The Electrical Experimenter shortly after immigrating to the United States from Luxembourg. Um, He brought a a new design for a a dry cell battery with him. 
that he got a patent for and attempted to sell the industry, which he figured would make his fortune. Unfortunately, it proved too uh, difficult to market, too expensive to market. But in the meantime, he made some friends over here and he discovered that uh, while there were a lot of new uh, radio science enthusiasts in the United States, um, there were very few opportunities for people to obtain the hardware that he needed. So he started with a uh, catalog of sourcing um, radio and electronic components from Europe to sell the hobbyists in the United States. And then he established an entire uh, magazine, pulp magazine publishing empire. Uh, he did the first television broadcast with new technology from the Empire State Building. Uh, he put out one of the first handheld transistor, it wasn't a transistor at the time, but a, a radio kit, and was almost brought up on charges of fraud because nobody believed that a radio could be built so small. But he demonstrated that it worked, and so he avoided the fraud charges. Uh, and he made his fortune with, with that. Um, and prior to that, when he was living in Luxembourg, uh, he developed an interest in what I suppose you would call scientific romance at the time. You know, Jules Verne, H.G. Wells, uh, and, and various other authors, and very assiduously went around and tried to find similar tales in other languages and whatnot. And so he had a, a fairly decent background for fleshing out the magazine and had used those stories to develop a definition of what at the time he called, and it's virtually unpronounceable, scientific fiction, uh, which is a portmanteau of scientific fiction. I always thought people said scientific fiction, like just as one thing, but yeah. Now, if you pronounce the way it's written, that's not, but, but the fans started calling it STEF, S-T-F, which was the abbreviation. Uh, right. At I'm not SF at the time, and Steph pretty much stuck uh, so that nobody had to try and pronounce that name. <laughs> I had right, and then eventually, I think Don Wolheim was the first to put the, the word science fiction on the cover of a book. And... No, actually, it appeared on a copy of the 1930s copy of Wonder Stories magazine. Okay. And it had been in a poem from the 1800s I think 1858 or something like that, um, as a, a description of, of certain, of basically of scientific romance, but it never entered uh, common usage until the Gernsback era. Um, so right. in, uh, he had all these magazines and science and invention, he would run uh, some scientific fiction. Uh, he had some authors who, um, he basically almost, you'd consider them to be staff writers uh, who did uh, various uh, scientific adventures, kind of like Tom Swift type uh, tales. And in 1923, he sent a letter out to all of his subscribers uh, saying that he wanted to do uh, another magazine focused on just that scientific fiction stuff. Um, and it would have been called scientific fiction or scientific fiction. Uh, and uh, he got absolutely underwhelming support from his uh, constituency. 
So he tabled the idea, um, although that same year Weird Tales hit the stands. So he was right that the market was ready for that kind of a magazine, uh, but he just didn't feel that he had the subscriber support to do it. And in 1926, basically without consulting with anybody as the story goes, um, he just said, uh, all right, we're doing amazing stories. And out it came on the stands. And you have to understand that, again, this is in a time where you could not advertise your new magazine on television. Uh, you could not send out a mailing list electronically. Even radio at that point, really. Right, right. And so um, if you look at that cover, it's this, it's this neon yellow depiction of uh, Saturn in the background. It depicts Jules Verne's story uh, off on a comet. It's a bunch of polar explorers ice skating on one of the moons of uh, Saturn. But the thing was, you could see that magazine cover sitting on the newsstand from a mile away. The guy, the guy knew what he was doing when it came to marketing. And I like to say that basically he engaged in social networking before there were electronics to use for social networking. His, his uh, radio magazines sourced a lot of its content from the subscribers because they were all hobbyists. Right. Well, and that leads to sense of wonder in these story contests because it's obvious that Gernsback was looking for a way to, I need more writers. I don't have exactly. a pool of it's science fiction writers, so I need to do this. Concept. I didn't realize it was so early. It was in the first year of the magazine. Yeah. And yeah. here, here's a real sad thing. So the 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 the, the prize money, five hundred dollars, is enormous for the time. Um, but it's also sad because um, you know you publish a short story these days. There's no way you're going to make five hundred dollars on, on a short story. And um, you know, I I just submitted something to McSweeney's, and I'm not saying I'm going to get published there. But McSweeney's is one of the biggest magazines in the world, and the publication is four hundred dollars. It's less than that you know, right from 1926. So, you well, know, he, he paid um, anywhere from a quarter of a cent a word to two cents a word. Two mm. cents a word was the epitome of author pulp magazine pay back in the time. And there are stories of authors like Walheim and Paul and whatnot from those early days. They would write one and, and place one short story and they ha had their budget for the month. So that'll give you some idea of how out of whack things are now. Because there right. ain't no way. There ain't no way. Yeah. So you, so he had to find a way to find new authors. And so this contest idea, how many, how many issues in was this first contest? It was, it had to be... Um, he, he announced it in December of the 26th issue, and okay. the June 27 issue published the stories. Right. And so, and so he had, so there's like one piece of art that, that you had to go on to, to base the story off of, but once the stories were published, he commissioned more art to go with them. Is that how it worked? No, the story, it wasn't, the, the first one was not, well, the first one was a creative story based on this illustration. 
Right. So was the second one. I'm sorry. You had me for some reason. I got a little confused there. Um, but yes, then he would went to um, his in-house artist, one of whom was Frank R. Paul, um, and the other one is lost to time, if, if it wasn't Frank R. Paul. And they did illustrations for most of the stories, which is one of the traditions that we carried forward with the new version of the magazine. Every single story begins with a title page with an opposite title page. It's a full page illustration for that story. And then some of them highlighted pieces, right? Mike so has, this was the one that he used for the first contest for those on YouTube? Right, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it's got like a floating, like looks like Sphere. almost Titanic and it's got these aliens. And so then there's other illustrations that use these same aliens that go with the um, second and third place stories and yeah, that confused me a little bit when I was first looking at it. I was like, "Wait, are they writing based on another? There's another piece of art, but it's no. the one that started it, right?" And then the stories were done for the issue of the magazine. The illustrations, the illustrations were done to go with it. Okay, yeah, right. right. Yeah. It in now, now the other thing, and and I noticed um, that uh, these ma- these stories were sourced from two contests. One of them was amazing, and the other was Science Wonder Stories. Right. In 29, Gernsback lost the magazine and his empire to bankruptcy. Some think it was a forced bankruptcy. The stories are a little shrouded in mystery, but nevertheless, within less than a year, he was out on the stands with Science Wonder Stories, a competing magazine, and at the time, amazing Science Wonder Stories and its companion Air Wonder Stories were the only three science fiction magazines on the stands. Um, uh, uh, Weird Tales was out. I think at the time, um, the other one had died at that point. Um, Thrill Book had died at that point. But um, who who ran Amazing Stories when Gernsback was gone? Like, who did they hand um, it to? It was the it was an editor, uh, Tremaine, hired by. Uh, the, the people on it, your names are escaping me at this point, but bottom line is that the people who uh, forced the bankruptcy were pretty much also uh, handed the, um, what's the word for uh, taking over something in bankruptcy? Um, the merger. Or, you're, no, when, yeah. you're, when you're appointed, and we'll call it the executor, when you're appointed the executor, okay. of, of handling a, a company in bankruptcy, um, and uh, he was another um, alt magazine empire, publishing empire kind of a guy. And uh, they brought in uh, an editor and just continued the magazine. Right. And, uh, well, you know, God, it's interesting because so Gernsback then like has to like recreate his whole thing with somebody else. I didn't realize Gernsback was as much of a kind of a known celebrity type guy. And I also didn't know that he was doing like the electronics magazines as far back as 1908. And mm-hmm. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Well, so he, uh, I learned that reading your book. So <laughs> thank you. Um, <clears throat> he, he was, he later on, he was considered, he was uh, nicknamed actually by one of the people you mentioned earlier, uh, um, Malsberg, uh, not necessarily Mallsburg specifically, but uh, discussed it as Hugo the Rat. Uh, Walheim was the one that nicknamed him that for not paying 
uh, for stories that had been published. Um, Walheim at the time, uh, and, and I greatly admire Donald Walheim, and I think that his contributions to the field are pretty here, here. unparalleled yeah. if, you, if you go and you study them. Uh, but um, he was also at the time uh, running around att attempting to uh, establish himself as some kind of king of the science fiction clubs or something like that. Right. He, and, he and a couple of his partners pretty much destroyed uh, every other club that was uh, out there as long as it wasn't uh, beholden to his uh, group. But he did say one thing that I think was very important to the foundation of fandom uh, and, and an aspect of fandom that is sadly being lost. And that is that when Gernsback uh, from Science Wonder Magazine started to establish the Science Fiction League, which was a, a corporately supported international group of affiliated science fiction clubs. Walheim went in and basically took over the Brooklyn chapter, I think it was, and uh, ran it into the ground, uh, eliminated it. And at the time he basically said, and I'm only paraphrasing here, that uh, science fiction clubs are not for serving the purpose of any commercial entity, they're for all the individuals. And it was from that particular fight that the idea that fandom is a non-commercially based entity, we're not in it for the money kind of a thing was established. Uh, and that sadly is, is going bye-bye. Uh, I think it was one of the pieces of glue that held fandom together was that we were all there to do it on a volunteer basis uh, without any expectation of uh, compensation for the work that we put in uh, and, and that kind of a thing. Um, and uh, so that's right. where the SFL went bye-bye uh, and that ended pretty much uh, Gernsback's direct involvement with fandom uh, it was diminished slowly over time. Um, yeah, and, and Damon Knight wrote about the instance that you're talking about in the Futurians um, in his book. It's kind of hard to find yeah. book. Um, but if people want more details or more coverage on Don Wilhelm, we interviewed his daughter, Betsy Wilhelm, on the Dickheads podcast. And I highly recommend that interview. It's one of my favorite episodes. It was the first interview we did during lockdown of COVID. So, um, oh, yeah. We were getting used to doing Zoom, but um, but Betsy was great and really like detailed a lot of. She knew a lot of a lot of the history of her father's uh, time, and um, she also uh, flexed majorly when we talked about her her father corresponding with Lovecraft, and she like literally pulled out letters. So that was pretty cool. Um, fun moment on our podcast. Yeah. Uh, so that's the Dickheads podcast, though. Um, okay. So, but um, yeah, I agree with you. Don Wilhelm was was incredibly important. Um, and uh, but getting back to to these contests, into yep. uh, you know, so Gernsback had to build up these um, the the readership, and there are a couple examples of people. Uh, there's like two or three that actually went on to have careers. Yeah, yeah, write classics, and we'll get to that. But um, you know, he his system to he had all these honorable mentions 
and it's interesting because I, the honorable mentions is how he can get out of paying people and still publish the story and then people are going <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I got an honorable mention I got published that being said um, for me the first half the first contest which was based on the art that I showed a little bit earlier um, the first place story let's talk about the first place story the, the, the visitation because I think what people look for when they read such extremely out of date science fiction at least for me when i read something from the 20s and 30s i like seeing what they got right what they got wrong you know what was ahead of its time you know um and there becomes this like third zone where this where science fiction that was when when you have somebody from 1926 or 27 trying to think about the future, the far future, you get this kind of third surreal reality. And uh, The Visitation is a great example of that. Um, and it's a really cool story. What did you think when you, uh, like what, I mean, when you unearthed these, I guess I should have said, what was your process in unearthing these? Cause that's- Well, I, that's didn't, I didn't have to unearth them. It was a simple process of saying, okay, um, well, you know, when we, when we were putting the book together, we were, we were looking for uh, something unique that we could publish that the content of which would not have a high cost. Yeah. And these are all in public domain. And I went and I researched and I found out that nobody had ever collected all of the stories that had won these two contests. Right, which is and amazing. I, and uh, I was like, nothing for nothing but they ought to be collected together in one place absolutely even, even if it's only a research resource for people who are studying the history of the genre or whatnot um so since Certainly. they had already been published uh and they were self-identified by being first second third or first honorable mention fourth honorable mention whatever i didn't have to read a bunch of fiction and make choices right it's already published it was already selected gernsbeck did that for you <laughs> yep he, yeah actually he did um that uh you have to remind me the first story i uh the visitation um yeah. by cyril watts and this one has the the ss shah of iran right and, and being picked up and deposited by some uh in the middle of a lake it's a cool yeah, and, story it's kind well, of a first contact story too <laughs> yeah yeah now the, the first thing that i found really fascinating about that was realizing that it was written at a time where it was entirely plausible that there was an area somewhere on the earth that this other race of people could exist and be unknown right right very good point um, and I, I'm, I was reminded while reading it immediately of, uh, one of my favorite older stories is a uh, Weinbaum's, uh, uh, A Martian Odyssey. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, um, he references. And Weinbaum died very young. He only yeah, got to write a little bit of stuff. Very, very young. Yeah. Um, and mid-career, uh, we have no idea what he would have accomplished, and, and it's, a, it's a major loss. But yeah, Robert Block wrote a lot about it because he looked up to Weinbaum like in the short time that he knew him. Right. Yeah. 
Um, but he, it, it's an alien on Mars and, a, and an astronaut from Earth. And uh, Mars has an atmosphere that can be breathed with some preparation by humans. And he, there, he's trying to communicate with this alien. And he references, uh, I, I, again, I, I forget the name right now, but a tribe of uh, people from Borneo who have particular uh, unique aspects to their language. And he references Borneo in such a way as if you realize at the time that is still, for want of a better phrase, considered to be deepest, darkest Africa. It's some place about which on the earth about which we have no real knowledge. And it's just fascinating to me that there was a time within the sphere of science fiction where that was still uh, a, a possibility. We lived on a world that we did not know that much about. Like we do today, yeah. Like we yeah. do today, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, and that is a cool thing about that story. And here's the thing about the um, the first contest versus the second contest. Uh, the first contest, the the word limit was was much bigger mm -hmm. uh, yep. and yep. i think gernsback learned from from the first experience like maybe that's a little bit too much because some of the writers who were less professional a little bit more amateurish um it makes the reading of those stories like the ones that aren't good you're or it's makes it a little bit tougher because you're like oh my god how many more pages do i have of this yeah it, there's it, a lot it, of that that creeps in sorry yeah no no and so what i'm gonna say is is that and, and there's nothing wrong with that because, you know, good, bad, or ugly, like these stories like are important for their historical significance. So sometimes you're going to trudge ahead even on, on the stories that you, you don't like as much. And for example, like the second place story, I wasn't very into. And I admit I, I did some skipping and some, some, <laughs> some moving around, but like, but the, um, but um, there were still interesting things in, in all the stories. And for the second contest, he made a much shorter, which made a much more palatable because even in the ones that I thought were failing a little bit, I'm still going to read every word because like it's short. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I don't feel like as commitment. Now to me, it's funny, just my personal opinion, the best story that I read in the collection was the third place story in the first contest. And, um, and this coincidentally was from the only author I'd heard of before. Right. <laughs> well, no, I, I, I think I'd heard of Charles Tanner, but I had to be reminded like before, when I looked at the book, I didn't remember who Charles Tanner was. And then like, as I was like, Oh yeah, he was a weird tales guy. I know him. Well, but, he, also, he also wrote, in the stack of the corridors which was a great inspiration to isaac asimov yeah yes yes and um i have not read that yet but it's i i added it to my list um uh just this morning well you're uh, lucky there are sequels yeah and <laughs> but claire winger harris was one that i was familiar with only because she had one of the standout stories of The Future is Female, uh, edited yeah. by Lisa Yazik, The Miracle of Lilies or Miracle of Lily. I'm not sure which, but anyway. I've got it if you want me to pull it. So. Well, I have it here too. I could look, but <laughs> but Miracle, that her story in The Future is Female, which was also from the late 20s, um, 
is, I think it's from 1928, is one of the best stories of that collection, which is a really, really good collection. Yes. So, you know, she's a quality writer. Yes, she is. And, and, and uh, she had a couple of collections out during her lifetime. And then during the great 60s and 70s, ignoring women in science fiction things, she kind of fell through the cracks and disappeared uh, somewhat. Uh, Lisa's done a great job of uh, uh, resurrecting and underpinning um, the actual history of uh, women in science fiction. Yeah. Uh, uh, shout out to Lisa, who we've had on Dickhead several times. Um, including an episode about that book, The Future is Female, so people can find that episode too. Yeah. But Claire Winger Harris, I think one of the things ab about, what's, another thing that's interesting about her appearance here is that uh, Gernsbeck is, has a very backhanded introduction to her story yeah, yeah. where, where he, he basically says, as a rule, women are not good scientific fiction writers but this is the exception to the rule and then goes on yeah. to say some really nice things about the story but he starts with this like completely sexist insult at the beginning well remember it, this is 1927 oh, oh, absolutely yeah and, and in my review of the book i said wow 1927 because <laughs> you know yeah. but the, the 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 default the default assumption of most men and most women was now and, and it was it was an acculturated thing. It was a thing that anyone, any female who was heading in that direction was probably heavily discouraged from being involved with and ran into all kinds of institutional blockages. But the fact was that uh, men were still beating their wives and getting away with it scot-free back then. Because right. it, wasn't yeah, no, it was, the, it was the, not considered to be a bad thing. That yeah, this is pre the way things were. Yeah, this is pre Lee Brackett. This is pre CL Moore. She was, she was, yeah. And I don't know what her history was or or how she got interested in science fiction or moved it forward, but um I now have a project to learn more about this this writer because she's two for two for me. Uh, and um I thought to myself, like, I'm probably gonna like her story, but it's probably not going to be as good as Miracle of the Lily because, like, how 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 could she like the first story be? Yeah, yeah, yeah and then but then because being that this was her first attempt at a story or whatever, but it's really good. And um, you know, some of the things it's an end of the world story, and it has like this really cool scene where the the oceans start receding in the Pacific, right? And, and yeah. yeah, and there's some really cool stuff. Um, you know. Because part of it, yeah, and the scene in the Pacific takes place in the way, way future of uh, April 1945. And um, it's, a, it's a cool, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a cool story. And um, she also talks about, a, there's a transatlantic plane called the Pegasus. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. it, it, it has lots of cool, neat, neat things. So, and of the longer stories, it's the one that um, flowed the best. Yeah. And yeah. that. It um, had most sophisticated use of language. Absolutely. Uh, of, yeah. of any of the others. I think the vocabulary was much wider than any of the others. This was a woman who, uh, if she had been born much later in life, probably would be one of our leading authors, not necessarily in science fiction, uh, yeah. but, you know, in, in general. Um, yeah, absolutely. And 
Um, so real, real trailblazer and really, really important. And if nothing else, um, her inclusion in here is 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 a, a, his, a historical part of this book. And, and I, I also wanted to point out one thing about Gernsback's introduction. I think it's an indication of his character that he went and wrote that introduction the way that he did. He didn't have to say anything other than here's a story from a woman. Hope it hope you think it's as good as the one written by the men or something along those kinds of lines. But he took the space to set her aside from the crowd and point out that that story was special. Now, we wouldn't consider it to be reasons that are special now. But back then, that was really bucking the trend. Right. And um, the only thing that I would really say is wrong there is it, it should have been number one. But that's just my well, opinion. Well, now, and, and I have, often, in my mind, honestly, you're, you're absolutely right. I have often speculated that had she not been a woman or if it had been submitted under a man's name, chances are very good that it would have been picked as the first place story. Yeah, I agree with you. And um, or a name that, you know, just like C.L. Moore or they can't tell the difference. Right. Yeah. That, yeah. You know, that being said, C.L. Moore didn't try to hide her gender. She was trying no. to hide the fact that she had a second, that she was moonlighting um, from her uh, bank job. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And um, so, so did you have a process of like, cause you have a section on where are these uh, writers now? And that, um, because a lot of them were just not professional writers is probably, you probably done. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't find them at all. Right. No, no, could not find hardly anything. I mean, I wasn't going to spend four years down at the Library of Congress doing heavy, 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 deep research on the people that that there wasn't something relatively easily available. That wasn't this kind of book. If that was this kind of book, I'd still be working on it. Uh, right, right. <laughs> but um, but I wanted to try and give a little bit of a background on each of them. So that if people wanted to find more stories by them, they could do so. Uh, and sadly, the vast majority of them just, you know, they they entered this contest. They probably did so on a on a one off kind of a thing. Uh, writing turned out not to be their primary interest. Uh, they got into the contest. They had a little thing to share with their friends. Uh, hey, read my story in Science Wonder Stories or whatever. And off they went with whatever other careers that they uh, established for themselves. Um, it's funny uh, too, like you can see like one of the writers, um, Cecil B. White, like was a, an astronomer. Yeah. And, and it says here that he wrote a letter criticizing a later Claire Wigger yes. Harris story. Yes. And, and, uh, and she sliced and diced him in her returning uh, letter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, um, yeah, and that's cool. And one of the things we've talked about, uh, you know, like the online debates that go on nowadays, like, you know, they were doing through the letter sections in these magazines. And we've talked, we talked at length about that in the Weird Tales episodes in the 30s series. Mm -hmm. So, um, and you probably have a lot of fun reading those letter sections when you go back to these old issues, right? In in some respects they are in some in some respects like anything else it's that old they can be painful, uh, you know we we have the benefit of knowing what happened afterwards 
right <laughs> right right and uh seeing who who was right and wrong about a lot of these things yeah because sometimes you know the science can be really ridiculous but then other times even when they're wrong you can be impressed with like for example like um i was reading uh judith merrill's children of earth and mm-hmm. like you know the science in it is not like hard sci-fi but there's things that I was like, oh, they knew that about Pluto then? You know, that's right, interesting, right? right? And well, uh, yeah. so so part two with the, the shorter, like for those on YouTube, this is the cover, the cover art. Science Wonder Stories. Yeah, yep. and it has like a spaceship and the Eiffel Towers floating the in orbit. And is with, that the Woolworth building? Or? Yes, the spaceship with tentacles. We're grabbing, right. grabbing uh, uh, souvenirs from Earth. <laughs> right, and you get three hundred bucks for for winning this one, but yep. you only get like a thousand and a half words <clears throat> this time. And um, yeah, and the winner is um, Charles L. R. Tanner. Yep, went on to be a regular in Weird Tales, so he was one of the probably the most successful writer out of all the um, out, out of all of them yeah probably yeah and because he wrote a classic which you talked about which isaac asimov is listed as one of his um and that's called the uh human attack of the quarters right and uh asimov has listed that as a major influence so um and he was uh in the kind of the lovecraft circle he traded letters with lovecraft which is kind of funny because this his story is called the color of space yes uh, which a lot of people like makes them think of the color out of space which is not exactly the same title uh spelled differently and two years earlier um so uh, from 1927 um but the tanner story is really interesting because it's about um, like kind of anti-gravity devices yeah uh, a couple of the stories from from that second contest were if you look at the the color illustration what you know you're going to go with something like that uh yeah you got, and you got flying saucers pulling buildings up off of the earth right and this one has kind of russian his story has like russian scientists and um you know, in the um, I think I think the anti gravity machines, and the, I think there's something about when um, they're talking about. There's a funny line where he says something like, "Oh, w- when they find your building deposited on Venus, you know, <laughs> really great stuff." Um, Tanner's story is one of my favorites. I got a real yeah. kick out of this one, and um, it's funny because I didn't recognize his name at first. I, I, it just was familiar to me, but I, I wasn't sure. Yeah when I read it and then I was like, man, this guy's good. Uh, the, I bet he did something else. And so then I immediately went and Googled him. Uh, <laughs> the uh, second place prize winner is, is my third favorite story in the whole collection, which is the relics from earth by John Pierce, who was apparently didn't go on to be a writer, but he was a, uh, well, no, he wrote a nonfiction book about hang gliding, I think. Right, and his, uh, his son is J.J. Pierce, who is an editor in, editor in the field now. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. And um, yeah, and his story was an attempt to be hard sci-fi. How much of it holds up or not is kind of the fun. 
Um, it's an early space travel yep. story. And if you think about um, at the time, like space travel was decades ahead. So like, it's funny. I think there's a line where it's, he says something about like traveling inside the atmosphere. Like it was like, that yeah. was just such a, they knew, they knew so little, you know, and yeah. In in this, uh, oh wait, wait, no, that wasn't the story. No, um, that wasn't Pierce's story. Pierce's story was the post Exodus. People have left Earth to go to Triton, and they're cut, and they're coming back for their for their build the buildings that survived. Is Pierce's story? Yes. That's the uh, the relics. Yes, yes, yes. Relics from the Earth. I'm confusing them. The traveling through the atmosphere is the Tanner story. I'm confusing them a little bit, but it's, the relics it's been from... a while since I've reread my own anthology, so you'll have to forgive me. <laughs> oh no, no, I totally get it. Um... But I did, I did want to make one little side point here. You know, we we've discussed a couple of times the difficulties of reading older fiction, and right. and a lot of the ways that people uh, uh, disparage the older science fiction is to say, oh, what they didn't even have computers in their story, and right. I, I find that a little problematic uh, and, and I put the responsibility back on the reader because if you're reading science fiction and fantasy, it's presumed that you have some degree of an imagination. Exactly. Like, and I hate when people are like, the Klingons didn't have ridges on the original series. It's like, well, update it in your head. Use your imagination, people. Right. And, and the way that I, I just dismiss all of that is to say they're in an alternate reality and for one reason or another, they decided not to develop electronics the way that we did. Let's move on with the story. So one of the interesting <laughs> ones too is there's a story called Cosmic Trash. It was the first- Yeah, album. the Bob Olson one, right? Yeah, so it says Bob Olson was one of their popular authors. Like, um, Yep. Did Bob, Bob Olson went on to a career, right? Like, he wrote several several more stories. Uh, he was featured in the magazine on a regular basis. Um, I didn't see anything that indicated to me that, well, and, and now his cosmic trash story, I believe that's the one with the trick ending of it was all a dream. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, and that was, that was so weak. I, I couldn't believe that he got away with it even in Gernsback's time, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I haven't read anything that's that's of any great literary merit beyond uh, the one that won the contest. But he apparently resonated. You know, the playfulness that he had in the story was obvious. He he was treating everything lightly, and I think that 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 playfulness came through uh, to the readers. Right. And and I think the, the stories in the second half are a little bit more fun just because you can relax a little bit and just kind of blow through them because they're not as long. And, yeah, yeah. And so me personally, I just I like the second half a little bit better than the second. Okay. Contest. <laughs> Although my two favorite. So you, story... would, you would have been picking science wonder stories up off the stands instead of amazing. Right. Right. Well, <laughs> um, I'm not saying I didn't like because my favorite story was in the first right. section, but um, my two my number two and my number three were in the shorter and I, I just, I had more like um, I had to read and bits and pieces the first half. Whereas each of the stories I just plowed through real quickly. And then I read the second half in one sitting, like yeah, yep. you know, very, very quickly. And so 
Um, because that, and that's the thing is that just mentally, like, I was like, if it's the, stu- if it's a stupid concept, I'm like, well, whatever, it's another page and a half. And, uh, and then I'm more amused by it. Whereas if I'm reading a stupid concept and I know I've got 30 pages left or, or 20 pages left, I'm going to be like, oh my God, get on with it. Well, you know, I, I, I grew up believing that if you picked up a book and opened the front cover, you were obligated to read it all the way through to the end. Uh, well, I I try that theory, and then there's Stephen King's fairy tale that came out this year, which I just could not <laughs> could not. I, I love Stephen King. I I made it about two hundred pages into fairy tale and was like, nope, nope. I life is too short. Um, I cannot. I if you cannot ever want to have a ranking on Stephen King episode, invite me as a guest because I'm not really a fan. Um, <laughs> But uh, I, I'm one of those kids that did the library thing with the rocket and planet sticker. Any, anything in the library that had that sticker on it was good to read. And I started at the A's with Abbott and Flatland and worked my way all the way through to Zelazny. Um, well, it's funny. I, um, I have one of those rocket stickers on my first science fiction novel, Flush Trade. And what uh-huh. happened was I saw, I was at the library and I saw the librarian putting one of those stickers on and I asked her for one. I said, can I have one of those so I can put it on my science fiction novel? <laughs> and she laughed and I was like, I, I just, uh, I, wa- I want to have one of those. Yeah. 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 And uh, so it's right there on, 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 on uh, nice. my copy of my first science fiction novel. And um, so, so here's the thing, sense of wonder. So I'm going to, to, to kind of tie this together, um, you know, it's interesting because one of the things you guys are doing is you're you're finishing or, or you're doing new stories in the um, Edmund Hamilton's Captain Future, mm-hmm. which which was a was a staple of Amazing Stories, right? If I'm correct, oh, like Captain Future magazine, 1940s. Okay, but yeah. but but he was all over all the other magazines with stories of super science astounding stories amazing and and all of them um he was a well-known name and so that magazine even though it was a little juvenile got fairly decent circulation and, and popularity for a time yeah and so what what i think is important here is is who who am i pitching this book to well i'll tell you i'm pitching this book to um Anyone who's interested in the history of science fiction and academics who want to know, because I think this is an important uh, chapter um, in, in, you know, and I'm not just saying this because, you know, you're on the other end of my Zoom, but I I just, uh, you know, that that's what I think is really important about the book. I'm not saying that, you know, and and you know this because you didn't pick the stories, but the stories are of a varying quality, but that's not the point. The point of the book is documenting this important um, thing that Gernsback was doing to build, it's an important piece of how he was building science fiction in the- And, and how the genre got started. And, yep. and uh, the, uh, the concept of uh, we're all standing on the shoulders of giants. Well, this is the well, first generation of giants that everybody else is standing on the shoulders of. Uh, and these are people coming up with ideas for science fiction stories with less than a year of the first science fiction magazine in existence. Yep. And and just all they've got is the H.G. Wells, the 
The Jules Vert. Well, they also unfortunately have Gernsback's own Ralph uh, 124C for one plus, uh, a yeah. romance of the year 2660 or whatever the heck it is, where he attempted, where he attempted to provide a working example of his definition of the genre, which is, has three parts to it. It's got to be entertaining. It has to be scientifically based. And it's got to extrapolate from scientific knowledge of the day into some kind of a future, which not all these stories have necessarily done, but right. they had at least they had at least two of the three elements. And for the first several years, you know, the bottom line is here, nobody knew what science fiction was when these stories were being written. They had a few, a handful of examples. Uh, they had when when this contest came out, they had uh, eight issues of the magazine on the stands, a April through December, uh, and um, people were no doubt familiar with both Jules Verne and H. G. Wells, but nobody had bothered to put these together and collect them and say this is representative of some kind of a new fiction genre. And it has a definition and it has rules that need to be followed in producing more of it. This was all before the, any of that happened. All right. So listen, Steve, you are an awesome guest. And Thank you very much. You've done a really great job selling this book. Um, but uh, and I know I'm going to want to talk to you again about okay. other uh, issues, history of science fiction. So we'll talk again. Um, you got a lot of books back there. Getting the book up on, uh, what was it? Um, Goodreads? Yeah, yes, you got to go there you. and add, because I can't edit it. Like, I, 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 that, I'm sorry, but but that, that website totally mystifies me. I can never find anything that I am looking for. I can't figure out how to do anything on there. And I, will, I, I will send you a link because I just need, but you as the author, you have the ability to, to add the cover. Because yeah. yeah. I screwed up because I, I added it, but I didn't have the cover saved in my files yet. And so I I, that was my fault, but, um, here's the thing I, I have to ask before you go, um, sure. all those books on the shelf and look, we, we managed to do this whole thing and not argue about avatar. That's great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's no longer an argument. It's now, it's now guns and, and, and howitzers and we'll, we'll take it out on, on paintball field someday, maybe. Yep. Um, but here's the thing, like, it's all of the all those books back there. Who are the five authors that you consider your favorite? Not do it. No, won't can't do, do it. it. No, can't no, do it. it's not that I can't do it, but my five moves through a Heinleinian tesseract and is five hundred by the time we're done. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. I, well, you I, know, I I am primarily an older science fiction and a newer science fiction kind of guy. But I don't disrespect any of the stuff that's out now. Uh, there are some great strides that are being made. There are some directions that's going in that I don't personally uh, appreciate all that much. But you know, yeah, that's that's what art is. You can't walk into a museum and love every single picture hanging on the wall. No, no. Well, that's true. And I try to balance myself by reading new and and old like to a certain degree but I, you know i i'm a retro guy too like i'm a john bruner or philip k dick like you know those are those are my um 
and uh um i'm beginning to uh the lee bracket is becoming one of my favorites like more and more uh the big jump was my was my retro read of the year last year and and um okay. yeah and i and i appreciate all, all the stuff and and i think um and one of the main reasons I ask is because I want people to to discover these authors. But I feel, I, but then again, if you made it this far in this interview, then you're somebody who's into the history already. So <laughs> yeah. I, we don't need to convince you. But um, but Steve, it was awesome having your. I, I really appreciate. Um, I don't know if people will say this to you often, but the way I feel about you taking on amazing stories is how lucky we are that the confluence of events happened that you're a person that's interested in trademark that through the paintball thing was, you know, and had the fandom and how lucky we are that you of all people ended up with amazing stories. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And um, checks are also appreciated. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> books. Buy books and uh, subscriptions to Amazing stories and all that. We dropped, we've actually dropped the subscription. And okay. uh, Kermit, I, 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 had, I had a pullout. And a real brief update on this is that um, I could not handle the daily, day-to-day of Amazing Stories anymore. And after a little bit of discussion, Kermit said that he was willing to take it over. He's doing that now with my full and complete blessing. Uh, and uh, he's going to um, take the website in a slightly different direction, again, that I agree with, uh, and so look forward to, uh, to that. Oh, cool. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that means uh, nonfiction content, like, uh, on a there, regular... There will continue to be nonfiction content, and I will occasionally go on there and write a rant about something that's pissing me off. Uh, <laughs> And I'll um, argue with you about Avatar. It's okay. We'll we'll we'll, we'll get through it. But yeah, uh, but you already gave Cameron your money, so you're lost. <laughs> oh, dude. Yeah, he got my money. Uh, but you know, hey, uh, he made Aliens, and uh, I was in. See, the thing is, I was in sixth grade when I sat there and watched oh Aliens. Oh my god! <laughs> Must have that, had a that, huge impact. That has a huge impact, and he'll forever have my love for that. And um uh you know it, it's funny because uh, well my mom died when i was 12 years old and i will say something for for um she was uh not a science fiction person and the one science fiction movie that won her over was the terminator like i remember okay. watching the terminator with her and so cameron also has a little bit of like he got my mom to like a science fiction movie i know it's the romance so. right right or whatever but like um you know that was the the one science fiction movie that she watched with me. She was like, well, that was kind of good. That and Starman. She likes Starman. Okay. Right. And uh, so so I have those two. And so I appreciate that. And that, that, that. Yeah. And and I and I and I get that. And you know, my my criticisms of Cameron are not related to any of his films directly. They are related to what I consider to be his lack of moral character. Uh, and so it's perfectly okay to enjoy one of his movies as far as I'm concerned. And as I tend to remind people who come after me when I say the things that I say, <laughs> uh, I have no power to make you not go and watch a movie that you want to see. Right. I, I, I have none whatsoever. 
You disagree with me? Disagree with me. Go and enjoy your movie. Uh, hey, um, listen, I am a big fan. I mean, Maltzberg is one of my favorites. I like grumpy old science fiction opinions. That, um, so I, I, I appreciate them. So, uh, you know, anyways, Steve, you're doing amazing work, keeping amazing stories alive, no much. pun intended. Um, and I'm, I'm interested to see where Kermit takes it. And, um, and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk to him at some point on the podcast too, about yeah. that direction. Cause I think that's really important. Let's, let's, uh, let's keep the history of this genre alive and um, keep people studying it. So on that note, closing out the podcast is always my hardest part. I had the hardest time ending. So, um, but thank you, okay. Steve. Thank you and, for having me. And uh, we'll talk soon and uh, people can find amazing stories at uh, amazingstories.com. Yep. All right. Yep. Thank you very much for joining way. us, everybody. A URL I had to pay way too much money for, by the way. Yikes. <laughs> Somebody else had it parked. <laughs> all right well you got it now yeah so all right folks thanks, so thanks thank you again thanks for joining us